We're going to look at the passage of Scripture that uh, Sarah, Sarah read for us from the Gospel of Matthew. And so we're in Matthew chapter 16. Uh, you can pull that up if you've got your Bibles, if you've got your phones. Um, this, is a, this is a really um, central passage to the Gospels. This declaration of who Jesus is on the part of the Apostle Peter uh, is an incredibly central passage. In Mark's Gospel especially, it's a very central passage. It's the first time in the Gospel that Jesus is um, declared to be the Messiah. In Matthew's Gospel, we see that almost from its very beginning, these, these things are said. But this is a, is a pivotal moment when it is said so clearly. And so I want to look at this passage of Scripture together today because I think it's a, an important one for us. This question about Jesus, who is this, is one that kind of followed him around as he lived his life and his ministry. He would do things and he would interact with people and often it would bring out this question in some way, shape or form. Who is this? Uh, one of the places that stands out is when he's calmed the seas in the storm. Remember he says, peace be still in a raging storm and the sea is quieted and all the disciples in the boat look at each other and say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Right? So they, this is one of those moments that stands out to me. Another one that I think stands out early on in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is teaching and Mark says that as he teaches, this question comes up, what is this authority? Like, who is this that teaches like this? You know, so even as he just teaches, People, something's moving more than just their intellectual minds, but their hearts and their spirits are being touched. And it raises this question, who is this? Um, in John's Gospel, in the ninth chapter, we have this interesting encounter between a man born, a man born blind um, and the idea or the conclusion that his family and his community had uh, kind of come to, and certainly the religious community around them, was that he was blind because of sins of the parents. Somebody must have done something wrong, and this is punishment for that, right? And it's a Sabbath, and so, you're, you know, kind of in the Jewish culture, you're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath, and Jesus kind of doesn't feel like that applies to this man's life, and so he prays over him, and the man is healed. And the Pharisees are all up in arms because he'd done it on the Sabbath, and so there's this whole thing going. And they enter into this conversation with this blind man, who healed you? you know, so there's kind of this question, but from a different way. Who is this? Right? And if you look at John 9, maybe later this week, you can read that story. I think it's a beautiful exchange around this same question. Because the blind man ultimately has to land on this. First of all, he says, I don't know, a prophet? Like, I don't know. And these guys just keep coming at him. Finally, he just says to them, look, I don't know who he is. All I know is I was blind and now I can see. I've answered you three times now, and you obviously don't like my answer. I don't know what to tell you. Right? But he is convinced that who he has interacted with, uh, though he can't pin it down, is no ordinary encounter. This is The answer to this question is one that needs to be answered. This question is ultimately, if you think about it, this is ultimately the question, the answer to which has Jesus crucified. When the Jewish people take him and they send him to be crucified, it's for their, their main issue is one of, they keep going to this thing of blasphemy. He's answered this question of who he is, and they say, you can't say that. 
Right? This answer to this question, who is this, is the question or the answer to that question that leads Jesus to his crucifixion. But it is also the same answer, that which leads to resurrection life. Let's look at it closer together. Jesus and his disciples enter into the district of Caesar Philippi, um, preparing, uh, in Jesus' mind, Jesus is up to something that the disciples aren't maybe aware of yet, but they're getting close to his passion. They're getting close to the journey to the cross and to the crucifixion. And Jesus is going to take some time now to begin to speak into his disciples' lives in a way to prepare them for what's coming. And if you continue to read in Matthew's Gospel after the passage we read, you can see he starts to do that on the nose. But I think it starts already here in this passage. Jesus preparing them for his death. Uh, just as a backdrop, I think it's worth noting this Caesarea Philippi, what this is. We're 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee at the foot of Mount Hermon. And there at the foot of Mount Hermon, there is actually a source water for the Jordan River. So we're kind of, you start to bring together all your, if you've been in the Bible or you grew up in Sunday school, you're thinking, oh yeah, I've heard Sea of Galilee, Mount Hermon, River Jordan. There's kind of like a, a, a key place, but he's left Jerusalem. Like they're kind of out into a more pagan part of this world. And the, what's happened there in the past, this place used to be, before it got called Caesar, uh, Caesar I don't know how you say it, Caesarea? I don't know, ancient Romans might argue with us, but we'll go with that, Caesarea Philippi. Um, you get out there, and that place, before it was called that, was called um, Paneus. It was named after a Greek god, Pan, who was a god of fertility, a, a god of nature, one highly worshipped. And so it was a great place for that worship because of the source of the Jordan River, the mountain. You can kind of put yourself in this place. And what it did was it, it attracted copious amounts of pagan worship. So there was a lot of worship that happened in this place, but not, not worship of the true God. Right? So this is kind of the, the place where, where they are. Uh, it's also a place where Herod Philip named it Caesarea Philippi. This is uh, uh, Herod Antipas, the Herod that we hear Jesus is interacting, the one who has John the Baptist beheaded. This is his half-brother. When their father kind of gave over the kingdom, he gave it to three brothers and split it up. This is one of the other brothers. And he named it this Caesarea in honor of, the C of Caesar and Philip because he had to get his own name in there. So this is kind of, this is, this is the area where we're in. We're seeing sort of this pagan worship, but we're also watching the predominant culture of the day. We're watching all the things it symbolizes in this specific area. And I think it's a fascinating backdrop for the exchange that we run into. And that's why I took a little time to kind of spell it out for you. The place would have been filled with uh, pagan temples, a setting that's consistently been a plague on the people of God to this point. A place where this, um, these temples and this visible worship kind of sucked them in and tempted them towards a syncretism. If you look throughout the history of the people of God, this is the kind of setting that got them into trouble over and over and over again. And Jesus takes them into this space and there has some conversations. It's kind of a familiar backdrop in some ways, and that's the other reason why I take some time to spell it out, because I think it's reminiscent somewhat of the world that we live in. I think there's ways in which we could think about walking out our faith and walking with Jesus in Langley, right? 
in a place that's surrounded by different worldviews and by predominant cultures that will, you know, kind of um, propel you forward, right, in ways that to not engage in would be kind of scary because it's kind of like, how am I going to get where I need to get? How am I going to sort of build the relationships that I want to have if I don't? And so part of, I think, in the same way for us, we have this same temptation to what I would call syncretism, where our faith begins to get muddled up and kind of mixed with the faith of the culture around us, right? So we want to hold on to our Christian faith, but we want to bend it a little bit so it's not so offensive or it makes it easier for us to exist in the place where we are. And, and this is the kind of situation they're in. So I, I think it's a, a backdrop we can identify with. Uh, Michael Green said in his uh, commentary, you can put this quote up there, George. Today when the world is a global village and when the multiplicity of faiths is regarded as a factual objection to the Christian claim of the uniqueness of Jesus, it's easy to forget that the seductions of syncretism in religion were every bit as attractive in the world where Christianity was born and they were steadily and consistently resisted. Sometimes we read these gospel passages and they, they, they feel to us, whether we're kind of conscious of it or not, they feel 2,000 years old. And we can do one of two things. We can think, oh yeah, that, you know, it's a good story about then. It doesn't relate to me because it's so far away. Or we can read it very anachronistically. We can kind of go back and sort of read it as if it's 2023, which it also isn't. So to look back and kind of take the history, understand what's happening there, but to also realize there's kind of nothing new under the sun. The people of God have always been tempted by the things that to us seem such a, such a plague, right? And to realize God's, this is an, God's got it. So here we come into this backdrop, and it's in this kind of awe-inspiring setting. This, to me, this is maybe not the space I would have chose to have these conversations. I might have chose, you know... the the temple in Jerusalem or something, some kind of a more um, holy and, and, you know, sort of like, let's, let's sit in this place, right? Let's go back to Bethlehem where I was born and let's draw some connections for you. No, he, he takes them out in this place where they're, they're very aware of the world they live in and how it is that this faith comes kind of into a collision with it. That's a pretty good idea if you want to prepare people for a crucifixion, event, right? Because it's about to really hit. So he takes them in, and in this backdrop, he asks them this first question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? The Son of Man was one of Jesus' uh, most common and kind of, we, some people say, his favorite way of referring to himself. Um, what, in, in, what, who do the people say that I am? And the, the, the disciples um, kind of all look to Peter, and as almost like a spokesman for the group, Peter steps up and he begins to answer for them. Well, he says the, 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 the easy answer is most people say you're a prophet. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, like they kind of were pulling back thinking maybe you're, you know, one of these guys come back. to, to like they, They're all aware of the fact, kind of like that blind man. I'm not sure, but he's a prophet. Like there's obviously something more. Most people are going there. So the answer that most people are giving is you're a prophet. I'd like for us to consider for a moment that question in our current context. Who do people say that Jesus is? So we kind of bring it back into 2023 and we can sit and we can say, who do people say that Jesus is today, right? Now, some people would, would kind of give you some form of an answer that I, I've heard referred to as like a Santa Claus Jesus. A Jesus that probably looks more like a vending machine than the creator of the world, right? So he's, Jesus is this kind of like, 
loving gift giver who I go to when I'm in trouble or when I need something and I read out my laundry list, you know, I, I push A5 and the Kit Kat bar falls out, right? So Jesus is sort of like the Santa Claus Jesus. He's, he's watching for who's naughty and who's nice. And as long as you're nice, he's got gifts for you in his bag. Other people might say, and this is a pretty common one, I think it has been throughout even when Jesus was on the earth, but throughout history. Some would say that Jesus is, who is Jesus? Jesus is a historical figure who we would maybe sum up this way. He was a bit of a, a guru of sorts, you know, a good moral teacher, right? Um, I don't think that that answer is wrong. I just think you're missing a whole lot more. But the, a lot of people would answer it that way. Jesus, he's a good moral teacher. We can put him in the same category as the Dalai Lama. We could put him in the same category as Gandhi. It's kind of like he's a, he was a good guy. He seemed to be really wise. And he shared that with a good moral teacher. C.S. Lewis, uh, who many of you have probably read bits and pieces from, he has, in mere Christianity, an incredible response to this idea of Jesus as simply a good moral teacher. He says the problem with that answer is, one of the other things you could answer to who Jesus is, is that he's a liar. Because Jesus, as he walked and he shared and he talked about who he was, and he laid these things out, he, he said that he was more than a good moral teacher. He said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. One simple example. I'm sure if I open the floor, we could just come up with tons, right? Jesus seemed to be pretty pushing that envelope. I'm not just a good moral teacher, right? And so someone would then have to say, okay, well then, I guess he's either a liar, so said, right? Because... If he's, you know, just a good moral teacher, he's either a liar or he's a lunatic. So maybe another option is you could say, yeah, he was kind of interesting, but he was a few bricks short of a load. Thought he was God. You know, the kind of people that we throughout history have locked up or put on heavy medication, you know, like he's the lunatic, right? And so these are all valid answers to the question, who is this? And answers that people have had. You know, and as people are pressed, but C.S. Lewis said you could answer that, that Jesus was a good moral teacher. He says, but I'm going to take some of the, the oomph out of that. I don't think you can land there because if, if that's to say that, then you're either calling him a liar or a lunatic or, C.S. Lewis, the way he put it, you could call him Lord. You could call him who he says he is, right? The Lord. Now, before I move into Peter's answer, I think one other answer that very much needs to be considered is, I think in our, our day and as we walk around, as I talk with people, you could very easily bump into someone who you said, who is Jesus? And they would just say, I don't know. Right? So I think we have to be aware of that too. You know, at, at best, I think he's, he's, uh, you know, he's like a curse word, like an explicit word that we use to sort of... When, when we bump our toe or when we're really frustrated, you know, that may be the only interaction or that's kind of the only place that word is ever taken, right? You know, or maybe, maybe, they, maybe they had a friend who was from Mexico City or something and they wonder if you're talking about him, you know, different part of the world where they still use that as a first name. I, so there, there can be a real, in our day and age, there's, I've, I know lots of people 
who've had no interaction with the gospel, no interaction with church, and, and even if they've had a little bit, would say, at the end of the day, you know what, I don't really know. I think you, you tell me. Jesus asks this question, then he follows it up with a second question. And I think the first question was a setup for the second question. Who do people say that I am? It kind of gets them into this space, take in your environment, think about what people are saying, kind of what we've just done. And then he says, right in the middle of all that, he says, but who do you say that I am? I love how Jesus seems to do that in our lives. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but where you're kind of going through life and it's like, however you kind of describe it, it's like God sort of breaks in and gets your attention. So you're kind of in all these spaces and you're having these, you know, they're having this intellectual theological conversation. This is who people say you are and this is what's been going on and look around us and we're overwhelmed by this and we're thinking all these things and then he just kind of cuts through it all and says, but who do you say that I am? And I can almost feel all the noise quiet. And suddenly it's really intimate. So it's either really exciting or really intimidating, <laughs> right? Because all of a sudden it's like, ooh, me, okay. Now we're, now we're not just talking observations. Now we're not just talking intellectual concepts. You've just called to my heart. And it's in this moment when Jesus asks the second question, this question that I would say is a foundational question for everyone. Who is Jesus? The way you answer that question, one way or the other, will have implications for the entirety of your life. Every relationship, every activity, every hope and dream, the way you answer this question will touch it. And so it's an important question. Let's look at Peter's experience for a moment. The question comes out, and Peter steps up and he answers... You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in response to this, Jesus looks at him and says, Simon, son of John, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. There's something in Peter's answer that has gone beyond the intellect. It's gone beyond the human comprehension. It's gone into a place where Jesus wants to say to him, Peter, you've caught something at a deeper level here. You've you've touched the truth in a way that we can't just credit you with. God, your creator, is helping you put two and two together right now. First of all, he declares him to be the Christ. Christ is a word that is properly or directly translated the anointed one. Often in the Hebrew, it's the Greek word that would be translated for Messiah. So Messiah and Christ, both meaning the anointed one. When he says that Jesus is the Christ, he's declaring that he is the long-awaited Savior. He is the one who the Jewish people have been waiting for who the prophets have spoke about. He's saying that you are not, like other people say, just a prophet, like Elijah or John the Baptist or Moses. You are not a a foreshadow like they were. You are the thing they foreshadowed. You are the prophet. All that they carried, their message, their life, their example, you are the fulfillment of that. 
that's part of what Peter's saying when he says, you are the Christ. Moses' whole life was a prophetic picture that foreshadowed the Savior who would come, not only to set a certain people free from the land of Egypt, but the entirety of the universe, all of creation, free to the kingdom of God. And Peter is saying, when he says, you are the Christ, he's saying, you are the fulfillment of that. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are the son of the living God. And these two things come together are awe-inspiring. I pray we never lose the wonder of this, that the anointed one, the Christ, who's come, is nothing shy of God himself. The son of the living God, it speaks to an intimacy. It's th- this language to, to speak of someone as the, the son of the living God is to speak of him as divine. You could pull out our Nicene Creed again later and look through the language that gets kind of expanded and used to try and give language to the mystery and the wonder of this. Right? Begotten, not made. Of one being with the Father. That Jesus is himself the creator of the universe. That Jesus isn't just a son of God. He is the son of God. And when I'm adopted and I become a son, we talk this language of children of God, that I'm a son of God. I became a son of God. Jesus was always the son of God. That Jesus is in a very different way, the son of God. And so then later in the passage, when Jesus uses this language of my father, it it would have been somewhat typical of, of a Jewish person to speak of God as our father. But nobody was using language like my. When Jesus speaks this out, this this idea of the Son referring to my Father, we're seeing in this exchange the fulfillment of what Peter has confessed, that you are the one we've waited for. You are the Savior that our lives need, that our world needs. And you're able to fill that role because you're nothing shy of God himself. The one who, who, who spoke all of this into existence in the first place. There's an intimacy and a oneness that gets kind of captured in John's gospel in the 10th chapter when Jesus puts it this clearly. He says, I and the Father are one. At a different point, he says to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Peter declares this incredible thing over Jesus. He, he speaks out his name. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what's so beautiful to me is Jesus' response to that is to then, out of that place, declare something over Peter. Peter Peter declares something of Jesus, and in response, Jesus declares something of Peter. And I love how Matthew's gospel captures it. It starts with this, Simon, son of John, right after he's referred to him as the son of the living God. Jesus says, You know, yes, that's who I am. And you are Simon, the son of John. But from here on out, your name will be Peter, which has in it the same Greek root as the word rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. He begins to speak out over Peter's life, calling and destiny. 
Friends, do you want to know who you are and why you're on this earth? Start with this question. Who is Jesus? Often in this shared desire that all of us have to know who I am and why I'm here. It, it, it's, it, it's in us. I think it was put in us from our creation. But our tendency is to try and answer it by, by putting as much life and attention as we can into us. Right? So, you know, some of these things are helpful, but we, but we begin to do as many personality tests we are and to ask questions and to just become super introspective and to look at these things. Now, there's nothing innately wrong with any of those tools, but apart from starting with this question, who do you say that I am? I, I struggle to know how you're ever going to end with a confident answer to the question of who you are. What I love about this story is it speaks to the heart of God who says, if you will come and allow me to be God in your life, like I made you. If you let come and allow me to be Father, allow me to be Lord, this story gives us a great example of what happens. I will, like a good father, begin to declare things over you. And what confidence comes, right, to a son or a daughter... When you say, who are you? And their answer, they got from their father. Those are confident kids. Right? When daughters who know they're beautiful because mom and dad continually remind them of that and give them a proper understanding of what beauty actually is, it's hard to take that from her. But a daughter who doesn't have that and has to try and find it on her own all the time, there's a lack of confidence in it. Right? It becomes a perpetual fight for identity. A perpetual fight for meaning and value and purpose. But when, like, we, when we do what has happened here, when we kind of look at this story and see what a beautiful invitation it is for us today to consider this question, who is Jesus? And to put our focus and our attention there and begin to pray Jesus, would you show me who you are? I love that he says to Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. So we need to pray and ask, God, would you reveal to us who Jesus is? I think one of the things this story should put a little bit of caution in our hearts is you can actually have an encounter with Jesus and then conclude mixed up things about who he is. That should cause us a bit of pause. I can have an encounter with God and then on the flip side of it be confused about who he actually is. When they said, who do people say that I am? He doesn't mean just people who have never seen you. Well, who, how would they know? He's talking about people who have encountered Jesus. But it's Peter who puts two and two together and I love that Jesus points out, you didn't put two and two together on your own. Flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And so for us to pray, Jesus, would you continue as I encounter you to meet me in those encounters and by your Spirit, help me to perceive, to understand, to know who you really are. Because I need you in my life. And I don't need a version of you that I came up with. I need you for who you are, even if every once in a while who you are, Jesus, is hard for me.
or calls me to things that I wasn't expecting. And so there's a part of me that can humbly say, Jesus, I need you to be who you are. Michael Green, who I quoted before, put it this way. He said, God reveals God. That should be a bit of a relief to a lot of us. I don't have to figure him out. He loves to show who he is to you. So if you feel like, I don't know, I'm at a loss, you're actually in great shape to start a journey. Because if you can admit that and begin to just say, God, would you reveal yourself to me? What a beautiful prayer to pray today. Maybe there's an area of your life with God as you walk with him and you're saying, I know God and I love this, but there's this area where I'm struggling to understand God. I'm, I'm struggling to understand who you are. My encouragement to you is to look into the face of Jesus and to pray, Holy Spirit, would you, would you come and answer to these questions? Turn to a friend maybe today. Ask them to pray with you. And let's pray together as a church that as we encounter Jesus, we would also have eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit is doing and saying. As I come towards the end of my sermon here today, let me read for you a quote. Um, George will put it up, uh, a portion of it anyways. I'm going to read a little more than what you'll have there. From a man named Dallas Willard. He says, The vision of life in the kingdom through reliance upon Jesus makes it possible for us to intend to live in the kingdom as he did. So what he's saying in that sentence really is just that to see Jesus as he is, is key to us actually being able to live like Jesus. To walk in the life that he had. We've got to see him. We can actually decide to do it. Of course, that means, first of all, that we need to trust in him, rely on him, count on him, being the anointed one, the Christ. It's through him that the revelation and the gift of the kingdom come to us individually. If we do not count on him as the one, we will have no adequate vision of the kingdom or of life therein and no way to enter into it. He is the door. He is the way. Find another whomever can. Later on in the same part of his book, he goes on to say, perhaps the hardest thing for sincere Christians to come to grips with is the level of real unbelief in their own lives. We're just going to sit with that for a minute. Because the reason why that's hard is because of our pride. If we humble ourselves and be honest, I think he's right. Perhaps the hardest thing for a sincere Christian to come to grips with is the level of real unbelief in their own life. The unformulated skepticism about Jesus that permeates all dimensions of their being and undermines what efforts they do make towards Christ-likeness. I can humbly and honestly say, I get that challenge. That it, it, and for me then, what it brings me to is this prayer that says, where I'm struggling, where I'm desiring to be more like Jesus, where I'm desiring to live out His way into life and life to the full, and I'm struggling... The starting point in prayer is, show me Jesus. Often we start with the struggle, right? Help me stop doing this. Help me start doing this. Help me. And we get fixated on these pieces. 
or we get really kind of pulled off into obscure questions of theology and we get all pulled away and we're thinking if we could just get that figured out, we'd be good. I want to challenge us today that I think all of those things need attention. But let's get the horse in front of the cart. We have to start with this. I need a revelation of Jesus. To see him and to see him as he is. And if I come into life and encounter with Jesus as he is, and my heart begins to confess, as Romans says, with my mouth, and believe in my heart that he is the Lord, this story is not a one-off. This is the pattern of life in Christ, where he begins then to speak over you who you are. And you can then, because you didn't come up with it on your own, you heard it from your creator, begin to walk with a confidence that I think is a key unto what Jesus called life and life to the full. I know who I am because my creator said who I am. In response to all of this today, I simply want to put the question to you. As if from the lips of Jesus. But who do you say that I am? The answer to this question always leads to the cross. I started by saying this. It was the answer to this question that brought about the crucifixion of Jesus. And if you go to the very next passage in Matthew... It's, it's the passage that says, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The answer to this question always leads to death. If that was the whole of my message today, I would say let's all just go to lunch and figure out a different way to cobalt. That's just not great news. But it's not the whole story. It will always lead to death, but the answer to that question will always lead to resurrection. So that's Paul says in Romans, if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That you will be welcomed into a life that you could not have pulled off on your own. Brought into eternal life. Resurrection life. That the answer to this question, yes, it leads to death. But I would say from my own experience, it's a death of things that needed to die. Jesus goes on to say after that, he who, you know, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You take hold of life in your own strength and you'll lose it, Jesus says. But if you'll lay your life down for my sake, you'll find it. I think it resonates with most of our hearts on some level, especially if we've been trying really hard. We're probably on some level to the point where we realize this isn't working. I need a Savior. And so the question I put to us again today is simply the one that Jesus put to his disciples. Who do you say that I am? And as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table now and always, I think it's an incredible opportunity to, like Peter, exercise our faith, 
Certainly in our service, one of the reasons why we recite the creed together every week, it's another opportunity to just stand up and say, I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven. And to just declare these things. But as you come to the Lord's table to encounter Jesus, my prayer, and I would bless you to just pray even as you come, Lord, as I come to encounter you today, Would you, by your spirit, give me the gift not only of encounter, but of revelation? Let me see you as you are. Especially in the areas where you know most, Jesus, I need that today. Because he knows right where you're at today. He knows everything that's gone on. He knows every unfulfilled dream and promise. He knows every failing. He knows every success. He knows everything that makes you, you. And so to come to that Jesus today and to come humbly and to lay your lives down here at the table and to, and to, to look on Jesus. And then at the table today, uh, whenever you receive, but today I really want to encourage you, after you've received, you don't need to feel like you're in a rush to get back to your seat. If you want to stay for a moment and just be and listen and pray, please feel free to do that. The other thing is that in our services every week, we've got a couple of people who, who have um, said that they would pray with people after the service. And so today, Grant and Jillian will be available. So if you're, if you're kind of there and you say, you know what, Chad's what he was saying, it really got me today. I'd love for you to pray for me. I want to see Jesus. Like, I don't know the answer to that question, and, but I want to know it. I want to come into a deeper understanding of that. That would be, I mean, what a gift to sit with someone like Grant or Jillian and have them pray with you today. And just to sit in that place and ask that the Lord would reveal himself to us. Let's pray together, and then we'll come to the table. Jesus, I want to thank you today for who you are. And I declare uh, alongside Peter that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I thank you for that. That you are the Savior. And I thank you that the Christ, the Son of the living God, knows me. <laughs> Just like he knew Peter. That he knows each one of my friends here today. And I pray that as we come to the table now, Jesus, that you by your Spirit, you would speak over our lives. With our lives, we we confess you as Lord. I pray that you would, by your Spirit, give us the opportunity to, to encounter you as you are and to hear from you who you say we are. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Friends, as we prepare to...